In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <coughs> he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made known him, him known. The word of the Lord. Well, today on this Sunday after Christmas, I want to dive a little deeper into the meaning of Christmas. Who was this baby born in a manger? And why is this baby so important that we are celebrating his birthday 2,000 years later? Who is this baby? This is a, a question the early church really had to wrestle with. Because sometimes he seemed like any ordinary human uh, person. He was born, he learned to walk, he wept, he got angry in the temple, he feared death, he had to eat and he had to sleep, he was tempted, and for heaven's sakes, he died. But sometimes he seemed divine, more than human. He could walk on water, he could multiply food, he could heal the sick, uh, he could calm storms, he could appear transfigured, and for heaven's sakes, he didn't stay dead, he rose so was he human? Was he divine? Was he some kind of hybrid? And the church had to sort of wrestle with this, and there were some, some theories that got rejected. One called adoptionism, where Jesus was basically human, but was anointed in a special way by the Holy Spirit, just like the prophets were. So fundamentally, he's human. He's just sort of adopted as a son. Another one called docetism, from the Greek meaning to appear, where Jesus was really fully God. He just sort of appeared to be human. He was kind of pretending, you know what I mean? He was God, but he was just kind of there, and he looked human, and he ate, but he, he wasn't really human. Another one called Arianism, which believed that Jesus was, was not divine, but he was supreme among all the created beings. So he's higher than the angels, he's higher, but, he, but he's not God, but he's way higher than we are. But he's, you understand, all kinds of theories and all kinds of debates and all kinds of questions that the early church had to wrestle with. 
But what the church opted for was a, a, a solution that it kind of defies mathematics, right? That Jesus was somehow both fully human and fully divine, that he had to be both 100% human and he had to be 100% God. And you don't need a PhD in mathematics to say, well, that's 200%. How does that work? But that was part of the mystery, and that's where they ended up on the discussion. Now, John, in his gospel, doesn't give a birth narrative the way Matthew and Luke do. Okay? There's no shepherds. That was the beginning. Okay? There were, there's no shepherds. There's no manger. There's no, none of this story. John gives kind of a theological birth narrative okay, about this idea of the word. The, the word we translate word, a very difficult word to translate, is, it's the word logos. It means truth. It means sort of theory of everything. In Greek philosophy, it was saying, well, what is the, well, how do we see how things fit together? How do we make sense of everything in the world? Or have you ever had one of those moments that's just almost perfect, where the world sort of holds still? Whether for a good reason or a bad reason, you just sort of pause and realize that there's something bigger going on. The wedding, a funeral, a birth of a child, whatever it was. The Greek philosophers had those experiences too, and they said, well, what is that? What is that underlying explanation of how things fit together? And they, well, that's logos. They had a word for it, logos. And John picks up on this word, and he says, well, Jesus was the logos. Jesus was this logos. And from the beginning, the logos was with God, and the logos was God. John makes this wild claim that Christmas isn't the start of Jesus. Okay? And it's not just John. It's in the other Gospels. Very clearly, Paul makes the same argument in Colossians 1. But the, 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 the world of Jesus doesn't start in the manger. But that Jesus always had been. He was always a part of God. That he was a part of creation. But in the manger, something changes. Okay? And John says it this way. That the word, the logos became flesh. There's this great theological word for this. It's called the incarnation. Incarnation. Okay? And you all would know the word carne uh, uh, from carnivores, like meat, flesh. Okay? Or carne, if you go to a Mexican restaurant, you want meat with it, it's carne. Okay? Incarnation, to become flesh. So John says that Jesus always was, and he was part of creation, but something changed that day. In that manger, where the divine became flesh, entered into humanity. In Paul's words from Philippians 2, Jesus empties himself. He, he humbles himself. He, he goes from heaven and he decides to come down, stoops down to us in a manger. And then Paul even says he humbles himself even more when he goes to the cross. Now, this, I think, is so essential for our understanding of Jesus. For one thing, for Jesus to die in the flesh, he has to have flesh. I said it on Christmas Eve, if you were here for uh, communion. I said, in order for a body to be broken, he had to have a body. In order for his blood to be shed, he had to have blood. And so it's so important that he comes and, and has flesh so that he can go to the cross. But I think it's so much more I think actually it's fundamentally important to the saving work of Jesus that he is born. I think it's important that he lives too. One of the things that always drove me crazy about the Apostles' Creed 
Apostles' Creed, some of you will remember from growing up. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, comma, born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, wait a minute. All his, li- all his life, all his teaching, his parables, his miracles are a comma? Like, is that all that is just kind of on the way to the cross? No, I think fundamentally Jesus is showing us how to live. And I think his birth is so important because the whole reason he comes is because there's this separation between God and humanity, right? That God was with humanity in the garden, but then there's this separation. The only way that you can be around God is you got to make sacrifices and you got to purify yourself. you got to go through all this. There's this big gap between God and humanity. And Jesus comes to heal that gap. And when he goes to the cross, he gives that to all of us. But when he is born in the manger, he's actually already healing that gap. Because this gap between God and humanity in the manger doesn't exist. He is fully God, and he is fully human. And and he's both together all the same time, 100% of each. We don't get the percentages, I know. But somehow, some way, he's already bringing healing between God and humanity. And then he lives this life showing us how to live in that bond. And then when he dies and he is risen, he gives us that kind of bond. So it is so critical because Jesus has to be fully human. If he's not fully human, then he doesn't fully die. And if he doesn't put on humanity, as the church father Gregory of Nazianzus puts it, what is not assumed is not redeemed. What is not assumed is not redeemed. In other words, for Nazianzus, if he doesn't become human, he can't save humanity. Okay? If he's not human, he cannot save any humans. But at the same time, if he's just human and he dies, all we have is a human that died. There have been plenty of those. Okay? He has to be more than human so that his death can mean something for the rest of us. Now, I realize that I am sort of theologically nerding out before you all, okay? And that I know this is heavy stuff, and I'm hitting you hard, and you're going to have to really think about it this week, and I hope that you will wrestle with it a little bit. But, but I want to I try to help you understand how incredibly practical I think the incarnation really is. Okay? For one thing, the incarnation tells us a lot about the nature of God. As British theologian Michael Ramsey puts it, the incarnation means not only that Jesus is God, we've already said that, but more importantly, it means that God is Christ-like. What does that mean? It means we all have questions about God. What kind of God is God? And if you read, you open up your Bible, you go to the Old Testament, you see a God, you're like, I'm not sure about this guy, Right? And I think what's happening in the Bible is over time, people are getting to know God more and more and more. It's like a, seeing God through a telescope. And in the Old Testament, it's a little telescope. And it's not real in focus. And then we get to know God a little bit more. And the telescope gets a little clearer and expands. And then it gets a little... But when we get Jesus, the telescope becomes a microscope. I mean, we just ooh, zero in. And we can see who God is because of what Jesus has done. It's so easy for us to feel like God is distant or abstract to feel alone, or even feel like God is judging us or picking on us, if not forgetting us, he's actually out to get us. But the incarnation of Jesus says, no, that is not the God we worship. That is not the God we know. It is the very nature of God to enter into our humanity, to not stay back and let you suffer, but to enter into it with you. We worship a God who is near, 
A God who gets close to pain and suffering, who forgives and repairs and who actively pursues and goes across the cosmos to be with you and with I. A God who takes it upon himself to fix what is wrong. Which means no matter what you've done that's wrong, God is actively pursuing you. That God is actively working to forgive you. The author of Hebrews finds great comfort in this. In chapter 4 he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So for the author of Hebrews, God isn't some abstract God with a big beard far off that has no idea what you're going through. He's a God that knows pain and knows suffering because he entered into it. He's a God that can love and have compassion for you in the midst of those things. It is God's nature to enter in. And maybe some of you need to hear that today. You need to be reminded of that because God seems far off to you. But I want to tell you that God is pursuing you and he is loving you and he is entering into your pain and into your suffering. That is his very nature. The incarnation teaches us that. And because it is Christ's nature... Since we are called to be Christ-like, I believe it ought to be our nature too. We ought to be incarnational people. We ought to be Christmas Christians. We ought to be people that enter into pain, that go into suffering. We are meant to be present with others. Creation is not disposable. We cannot ignore and mistreat our world. Okay, We cannot sit back while other people suffer and go through pain and do nothing about it. We must enter in. I'll tell you when I learned this. I learned this very early on as a pastor. I was in uh, my first church where I was, I'd been a youth pastor, but youth pastors don't do that much, right? So it's true. So I, I had, I, 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 there's a lot of stuff I hadn't done. And one of the things I hadn't done was a lot of hospital visits. So I was in my first year of seminary, getting towards my third term. And uh, I'd been a pastor at a church, solo pastor as a seminary student for a couple months. And I got a call that Margaret was in the hospital. Margaret was not a member of my church. Uh, Her son was and his wife. But I didn't know Margaret at all. I had never met her. But she had cancer. And she was losing her battle with cancer. And uh, I got a call that she was in the hospital in sort of a, basically in a coma, that she was not going to wake up out of. Okay. So here I am, my first year of seminary. And I got to go visit this lady. And I am incredibly intimidated. Okay? Which doesn't happen to me that often. But it really did there. And I had no, and I was freaking out on the drive to the hospital. It it sounds crazy. I I just didn't even know, like, I didn't know how to get a room number. Okay? I was new to the area, so I didn't know that hospital. I had to look it up on a map. I mean, I'd never been there. And I was freaked. And I was, you know, it's my first year of seminary. I didn't know what to say to this family. By the way, three years of seminary, I still don't know what to say to that family. <laughs> um, and so I pull into the parking lot, and uh, it was at the Beaver Medical Center, and they had clergy parking. And I stopped the car, and I didn't pull in a spot. And it was like this weird moment of, well, I'm not ordained yet. You know, I'm in seminary, and I'm like not quite... So I like paused just in the middle of the parking lot, and I, then I parked next to the clergy parking. Like I was almost clergy. And I just, I just sat in my car. It, it, it felt like an hour. I mean, it may have been only like five minutes. 
But I just sat next to the clergy parking, feeling as inadequate as I had ever felt in my life. And I was like, God, you got to do something because I, I got to go in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got I to get up the courage to go into this place. And uh, it was one of the few times in my life that God, he didn't speak to me, but, but he, 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 he showed me something. It, w- it was more like a text message or a meme. The, the picture I got was of the incarnation, was of the incarnation. And I came to this realization, just sitting in the car, totally from God, that Jesus is already in the room. I was feeling all this pressure to bring Jesus into that hospital room. Guess what? Jesus is already in the hospital room. What I understood was, what, what Jesus wanted was a bodily presence. He wanted some flesh in there representing him. Okay, he wanted to be incarnate in that hospital room, and I was it. Okay, I was the flesh. And I finally, uh, getting this realization, got up the guts to go in there. And I spent about two hours, and I didn't have to say anything. I just listened to stories as the family members who were mourning getting ready to lose their mother or their sister or whoever else was there. Told it, it was great, actually, because I, that ended up being my first funeral. And I got two hours of just great stories. I really knew this lady, even though I had never met this lady. I park in clergy parking now. Okay? Not because I feel worthy, but because I feel called. Because what I understand is that my job is to show up. My job is to be present I don't have to have the magic words. I've never gotten the magic words. They never came. But I have to be present. And what I have learned is that that's not just a lesson for pastors. That is the way we all as Christians should be. We should be people that show up in the flesh, hands on. But so often we fail to incarnate. Okay? We fail to be God's presence in this world. We keep everything at, we, we kind of lob our love at a safe distance. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I'll write a check. Okay? All right, somebody needs something, I'll pray for you. When what they actually need is somebody to talk to, somebody to take them out to coffee, somebody to bring them a meal. Okay? 20 bucks so that they can get a meal on the way to the hospital or back and forth. Okay? It's so easy for us to say, stay sterile, stay hands off. Right? Stay nice and clean. Okay? But that is not the way of Jesus. You understand that? The incarnation teaches us that. The way of Jesus is the dirty way, the hands-on way, the get-in-there way. That's what we learn at Christmas. And it's complicated because it's so much easier to stay back. Okay? It's so much easier. And I, I watch this as parents. I'm always tempted by this. Right? To outsource. We outsource. We have doctors to take care of the health of our kids. We have schools to take care of the education of our kids. We have church to take care of the spiritual health and education of our kids. But what's the problem as a parent or as a grandparent? You can't outsource responsibility. All those things that are good and that are helpful, you're still responsible. Sure, the government might have welfare. Sure, this church might do ministry and give to missions. But that is not a reason to not incarnate. Sometimes we hide behind good things because we don't want to get dirty. But in the manger, Jesus got dirty. It is the very nature of Jesus to enter in. And and, and here's the other piece I think we miss. Is that when Jesus is incarnate, he is incarnate to a time and to a place. Right? He went to Israel, this little place. 
Okay, at a particular time, he spoke a particular language. How often do we despise the time and the place that God has put us in? God, I, I wish it was 20 years ago, God. How come it's not 20 years ago, God? Right? Or I wish this was over. I wish I was through this and I was on to the next phase of my life. Or I wish I had another job. I wish I had a different spouse sometimes, right? wish I had somebody else's kids. We, we, we end up living in fantasy instead of actually living in the time and the place that Jesus put us. But Christmas teaches us that, that Jesus comes to a now, and he comes to a here, and we need to, people, to be people that trust Jesus enough to live in our now and to live in our here. Part of humbling ourselves in the incarnation the way Jesus does is to yield our ambitions, our dreams, our regrets, our wishful thinking, lay them all down at his feet and say, what do you have for me today? Now. Who can I be Jesus to? Who can I have flesh for today that needs to know about Jesus? Because this world needs Christmas Christians. This world desperately needs incarnational churches. In fact, I'll make a bold statement. I don't think there's any future for churches that aren't incarnational. Okay? The, the church of the country club that sits back away from everybody else's pain and suffering, there is no future for that church in this world. We must be people. We must be a church that is engaging in our world. That is what Christmas teaches us. And that's why the incarnation, as heady as the theology might be, is really so practical. Where are you living out your faith for somebody else? Where are your hands getting a little dirty? Okay, where, where are you entering in? Because that is the way of Jesus. May we be Christmas Christians, and may Christ be in us as we are in the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.